It's always my greatest pleasure. Um, I speak a lot throughout the year, but there's no greater privilege for me than to be invited to speak to my brothers and my own church. So I'm very honored to be here with you guys this morning. Um, let me just open in prayer and then we will dive in and discuss this idea of holiness and our pursuit of that as believers. Holy Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for inviting us into your kingdom. God, that we would enter into a new story where our very beings are being transformed by the power of your spirit. And so I pray this morning that um, you would encourage us in the gospel and that you would give us motives to seek your glory in all that we do. And we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So just as a, as a starting point, a few things I want to point out when we talk about the subject of holiness is um, three different things. Moralism. Uh, that's definitely not what we're talking about here today, which is an exaggerated emphasis on morality for morality's sake. Just be a good person for the sake of being a good person. Um, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about a Christian pursuit of holiness. Uh, legalism is certainly something that we want to avoid. The idea that following the rules will serve to satisfy God's wrath or obedience will earn more favor with God. Um, I'm talking to people all the time in counseling who feel that somehow they have been a, a huge disappointment to God because they haven't done devotions seven days a week for two hours a day. Um, they're in this legalistic mindset that somehow I can add something through my behavior and through my performance to what Christ has already done on the cross. So we want to avoid legalism as Christians, and, and that's something it's, it, we're all uh, prey to fall into that trap if we're not careful. And then the other extreme is antinomianism, which means uh, obedience really doesn't matter. Christ has done everything. I can go live uh, my life the way I want, not really concerned about the glory of God uh, or my behavior, and that's okay. So we want to avoid that as well. Ultimately, we pursue holiness because God is holy. And to pursue holiness is to ultimately pursue the beauty of God's character. When R.C. Sproul talks about holiness, and he, he was big on this topic, he often uh, cites Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. And it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And on this passage, Sproul says this, This, the holiness of God, is a dimension of God that consumes his very being. And he points out that in the passage you don't, uh, you don't hear uh, God is love, 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 or God is gracious, 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 or God is kindness, kindness, kindness. It's very specific to his nature. God is holy. And this holiness permeates his entire character. So, for example, God's love is pure, holy love. That's distinct from us in that often we may seek to, quote, love others in order to get our own felt needs met. 
Uh, let me reach out to you in a loving gesture so that I can get something in return. God's kindness is holy kindness. It's perfect kindness. Often, maybe we're kind due to the fear of man. We're just polite and kind to people because we are afraid that we will offend them or we will in some way be rejected by them. Um, God's intentions are always holy intentions, and uh, that's distinct from us in that even in our greatest effort to live out of pure intentions, we always have some, uh, some aspect of being tainted by the flesh because we're still fallen. So since God is holy and the telos or the ultimate aim of our redemptive journey is that we would finally be conformed to his image, I believe it's reasonable to conclude that pursuing holiness must be an aspect of the divine dance that we call sanctification. But we have to do that in the proper context. And so we begin with this reality as as men of God that our final hope is that Jesus is our holiness. Jesus is our holiness. Um, Hebrews 4 gives us a wonderful portrait of his humanity, but also um, points us to the fact of that we have a holy redeemer. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That gives me a lot of hope as, as a man, as a person, to know that I have a redeemer that came to this earth and he, from from an infant to the day of his death, subjected himself to every single type of temptation known to humanity. That means when he was a child, he was tempted and he overcame. When he was a teenager, he was tempted and he overcame. When he was a young man, he was tempted and he overcame. And he was without sin. And as a result, that gives us hope. Because as believers, the Bible tells us that we are now in union with Christ. And so we read passages like this, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Every moment that you have rebelled against the Lord, the darkest thing you can imagine that you have experienced in the realm of sin is hidden with Christ in God. That is hope. For all of you were baptized into Christ and you have been cl- and, and clothed yourselves with Christ. Galatians 3.27. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this idea that we are cloaked in the very righteousness of Jesus is our is the starting point, in my opinion, of pursuing a life that more and more exemplifies holiness. Herman Ritterboss, who is a theologian on this very topic, says this. This is evident even from the fact that being in Christ crucified, dead, raised, seated in heaven with him, obviously does not have the sense of a communion that becomes reality only in certain sublime moments, but rather of an abiding reality, determinative for the whole of the Christian life, 
to which appeal can be made at times in all sorts of connections and with respect to the whole church without distinction. Something that I do a lot uh, in counseling is I really have to retrain people um, or teach them uh, a gospel-centered way of repentance. Because as you may imagine, a lot of people are coming to me who are struggling with specific addictions or who are struggling with issues of rage and anger. Um, A lot of men come to me who are wrestling with pornography. And unfortunately, the cycle of any addiction is shame is a big factor. And so when a person gives in to the addiction, uh, very often they experience profound shame because they've done that. And that shame tends to reinforce the need to run back to my addiction to find relief, to find escape. And so, and and very often their repentance sounds just like them beating themselves up before God as though they have to go and pay some kind of penance before him. God, I'm a terrible man. I'm a terrible person. What a fool I am. Those kind of things. But I try to help men reorient their mindset of repentance that in your greatest moment of weakness is the time to glorify the finished work of Christ on your behalf. That in that moment is when you need to be reminded that in that, in, in that season or that second or that hour of profound sin, you are cloaked in absolute righteousness. And the Father, even in your extreme rebellion, the Father looked at you as an obedient saint. And to not take advantage of that and not to minimize that, but to really meditate on that reality because, it, because it's from that reality that a, a motivational core to honor God is, is developed. But now I'm wanting to honor God not to find favor, but I want to honor God because he's given me so much. I want to live a life to the best that I am able to glorify him uh, because he has given me himself. So we can say as, as Christians, as men who believe in Christ, we can say this because we are in union with him. Anything that is true of Jesus is true of you. Anything that is true of Jesus is true of you. Jesus responded perfectly to re- rejection. When they were chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, he responded to that perfectly which helps me in my marriage when I feel rejected by my wife and I get self-centered and I start doing uh, selfish things, I can take comfort in knowing that in my foolishness and my self-centeredness and egocentrism that there was a redeemer who came and allowed himself to feel the sting of rejection, even by his own people, because he knew I was going to fail that test and he knew you would fail that test. Jesus responded perfectly to betrayal. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father moment by moment, day by day. The Bible tells us that it was his food to do the will of the Father. That's attributed to you on your worst day. Jesus did not allow power to be his God when he was tempted in the desert. Jesus responded perfectly when confronted with death during a terrible storm. And Jesus did not use alcohol to escape the mental horror and stress of the cross. There's an amazing article on uh, the Desiring God website 
uh, where the, the writer uh, talks about the two times that Christ was offered wine on the cross. And according to this author that uh, wrote this blog, um, he says the first time that the wine was offered, the type of wine that it was, was a wine that would basically intoxicate you and somewhat alleviate some of the, the physical pain that you were in. And when Jesus was offered that wine, what did he do? He rejected it. The second wine that was offered was a different kind of wine. And according to this, this article, it was a wine that they would give to, to soldiers in the field that would actually serve to uh, hydrate them, keep them alert. And when Jesus was offered that wine, he took it. And the point of the article is that Jesus did everything that he had to do to f perfectly fulfill what he was called to do upon the cross. And so uh, it's interesting, you know, there, there he was in the most terrible moment you could imagine, uh, the most f excruciating physical pain uh, that a human being can experience, not to mention the full wrath of the Father being poured out upon him. And he was given an opportunity to find a little bit of escape from that through alcohol, and he refused. So if there's anyone here who wrestles in that regard, know that Christ has put himself in that place, and he passed the test for us. And we can take comfort in that. In this union, believers are identified with Jesus in his perfect righteousness before the Father. Therefore, they receive the Father's full favor and love. In union with Christ, believers have Jesus' standing before the Father in acceptance with the Father. In union with Christ, the Father delights to do believers good all of their days. The words of the Father that the Father spoke to Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, reveal the Father's anthem towards all of his children. A good friend of mine who is a um, Christian psychologist, probably the leading Christian psychologist in the world, in his book, uh, God and Soul Care, has written this. Being holy and righteous, the new self is in principle without sin, shame, and guilt. It is not naked like Christ was on the cross, but is clothed with Christ and his righteousness. And so as we think about pursuing holiness, we want to, in our personal lives, we really need to reflect daily on what Christ has already done on our behalf. Because if we don't start there, we will find ourselves running in that direction of legalism or moralism, which is ultimately a weight upon our shoulders. Um, another reality that we want to be mindful of as we talk about this topic is that we pursue holiness in a new location as a people of God. So salvation isn't simply a regeneration of the heart. It's actually us being placed in a new location. St. Augustine said this, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self and the heavenly by the love of God. And it was his belief that only the believer could experience that second reality. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in this new location, there are new promises that we have access to to help, us incur to help encourage us in the Christian walk. For instance, we are promised that sin no longer has dominion over us. So whatever sin you wrestle with, 
If you give in to the idea I'm enslaved by this sin, in my opinion, that is not true for the Christian. It might feel like that. And we may create habits that uh, perpetuate that, that idea. But according to Paul, sin, does no, sin no longer has dominion over the believer. Romans six thirteen through 14. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. John Murray says this as it regards that very passage. Paul is not simply giving an exhortation. He is making an apodictic statement beyond dispute to the effect that sin will not have dominion over the person who is under grace. He gives exhortation in very similar language in the context, but here he is making an emphatic negation Sin will not have dominion. Now, that's encouraging. Because in our, in our fallenness, the heart, Scripture tells us, is deceitful. And in our fallenness, it can feel like sin has dominion. I have sat with many people uh, in the throes of addiction. And in their life experience, what they experience feels like this thing has dominion over me. But the bottom line is not the experience, it's the word of God. And if the word of God says it it no longer has dominion, uh, then as we engage the change process, we want to stand on that promise and trust in the Lord's timing uh, as far as uh, what it looks like to move forward in that struggle. Um, Whether it's alcohol, pornography, anger, anxiety, uh, we we can... Cling to that reality. Here's an example that actually Darwin gave to me. Uh, A child is adopted from a bleak and barren orphanage in Russia where food was scarce and the ownership of anything was tenuous at best. Now for the first time in a middle-class American home, the child is put into an environment with an abundance of food, multiple sets of clothes, and his own real soccer ball. For months, he may still stuff food in his pockets, hide his clothes under his mattress, and hide his soccer ball in the corner of the basement. But he is in a new, healthy, safe environment, but his former life persists to a degree. It still has momentum. So the flesh and the fallenness still has momentum in our lives, but we will never be under the dominion of sin as we were before Christ in his mercy made us alive. We are promised that grace is now at work to help us live self-controlled, upright lives now. Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'll often share that passage uh, in, a, in a first meeting or two because people, uh, we can often lose hope when we're, when we're wrestling against sin and, and we're stumbling along the way and it feels like we're taking five steps backwards and maybe one step forward. Uh, But to believe, even in the midst of what feels like epic failure, that our bottom line as Christians pursuing holiness is this. It's not in our efforts. It's in the reality that God is pouring out his grace upon our lives. And that grace has a very specific trajectory for us in that it is teaching us to live self-controlled, upright lives now. We are promised that the entire Trinity is working on our behalf. 
I encourage you over this next week, go and, and meditate and maybe journal on Romans 8, 26 through 39. It's one of the most profound portraits of the Lord's activity uh, in our lives in all of the Bible. So in that, you will find in our weakness, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with words that cannot, uh, we cannot understand. The Holy Spirit is constantly, guys, he's constantly praying for you. All throughout the day when you're not even thinking about God because we're distracted by work or other things, we can be assured that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And then a little bit later in that passage, we read what is called the golden chain of redemption, where it tells us that uh, those God foreknew, he predestined, and those predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he's glorified. So that in the mind of God, our redemption is complete. All of that is past tense, including glorified. And as Paul was reflecting on that, the very next thing that he says is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then if you keep reading, right after that, it says that Jesus is also sitting at the right hand of God. And what is he doing for us? He's interceding for us. So if you ever feel yourself discouraged because uh, sin is knocked you in the teeth one more time, I encourage you to meditate in that moment, the whole trinity is at work and the whole trinity is faithful to accomplish what uh, was prepared for us and purpose for us before the foundation of the world and that we can say as as men right now in that reality the holy spirit's interceding uh the father's plan is accomplished uh jesus is interceding if god is for us who can be against us period Seeking to obey and trust God and his divine wisdom fosters also a spiritual, psychological, and emotional health. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him, he, him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The fear of man is not, or the fear of God is not walking around afraid that God is about to strike us to the ground. It's, it's, it's. Learning to live with a conscious awareness of God moment by moment by moment and developing a new, uh, an ongoing, growing awe of who he is. Um, we swim in the presence of God. There aren't moments where God is present and, and then moments when he's not. He's, he's constantly here. And part of our growth in holiness and, and sanctification is training our hearts and our minds to, to live with this continual awareness that he is there. And this continual awareness that all of life is ultimately centered in worship. And everything that we do, in my opinion, is motivated by what we worship. Every human being is worshiping something. And we've been invited into this new story and our eyes have been opened and our heart has been given new affections where we are privileged to worship the living God of the universe. So in the realm of our thoughts, thoughts are very much an aspect of worship. Um, in the cognitive realm, we read Jeremiah 17, 5 through 9. It's a very uh, interesting passage. And uh, in, in my work, it's a very diagnostic passage. 
Because people, all of us, often attribute maybe our sense of discouragement our, or our sense of anger um, or maybe even a struggle with a particular sin, we'll often attribute that to stresses in our lives or circumstances in our lives. You know, I can, I can walk home and, or get home from work and something's not done around the house that I really want it done and I can, I can feel myself being angry at my wife. And in my deceit, I can say I'm angry because she didn't do X, Y, or Z. But in reality, I'm angry based on what I'm believing about X, Y, or Z. So Jeremiah 17 says this, uh, paraphrasing, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and depends on flesh for his strength. So if I'm depending on my wife in order to find my ultimate sense of fulfillment, uh, Jeremiah is warning me that is, that is a cursed way to live. If that's your ultimate hope. If that's, what, if that's the ultimate trigger between you honoring God or sinning, then we're in trouble. And he gives this really vivid picture of what that will look like inside. Cursed is the one who trusts in men and depends on flesh for his strength. That person will become a dying shrub in the desert. And it will not be able to see prosperity when it comes. That person will live in a salt land uh, where no one lives. So when I put my, my trust in flesh, whether it be another person or even in myself, ultimately, um, it has ramifications. Inwardly, I may begin to look like a thorny shrub. Anger may prevail. Addiction may prevail. Anxiety may prevail. Depression. But then right after that, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree um, that bears fruit and its leaves will not even wither in a year of drought, but it will continue to bear fruit. So what's the difference in my life of becoming a dying shrub or a, a fruit, fruit-bearing tree is not necessarily found in my circumstances. According to this particular passage, the question is, who am I trusting in this moment? And what does that look like for me? And Jeremiah gives us right after that just this perfectly placed verse because this is our battle. Um, The heart is deceitful and beyond cure who can understand it. So we are in this constant war within ourselves of not falling into deceit and placing our ultimate faith and trust in the wrong thing. When we talk about the thought world, one of the most profound pictures of how powerful the thought life is in our experiential reality is found in Lamentations 3, verses 1 through 25. Um, And I'll just read a few passages out of that. What we find initially is... Uh, This is Jeremiah. He's in the pit. Um, He's suffering terribly. And in the first 19 verses, first 20 verses, you hear things like this. And he's talking about God. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. Uh, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in the ashes. uh, Jeremiah is having uh, thoughts about God that almost sound as though God is, is torturing him purposely for no reason. 
So he's in, he's in this state of mind in his thought life where God looks like a very cruel and mean person. But in verse 21, there's a cognitive transition for Jeremiah. His thinking begins to change. And he says this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Nothing's changed for Jeremiah. He's in the pit. It's bad. He's waiting to die. But in his thoughts, he, something came to mind and And in that same circumstance, he began to have hope. And here's what he remembered. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So he began to live with an accurate understanding of who God truly is. Rather than projecting his own ideas on God based on his experiences and his suffering, he was was able, by God's grace to get just a small glimpse of, wait a second, who's this God I'm talking about? His mercies are new every morning. His love is steadfast. It's constant. And that, even in the dark pit, gave him hope. And it's very interesting because he still talks about his suffering, but listen to the language. It's very different. Rather than God torturing him and coming at him like a lion, he says this, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. His whole experience was transformed when he began to think about God as God truly is. And he didn't ignore his suffering. He didn't pretend that he was now living in the clouds and everything was easy. He just began to reinterpret his suffering and reinterpret his understanding of God. Dr. Johnson, again, who is a Christian psychologist, um, in his fascinating book, um, God and Soul Care, which is basically a systematic theology book for psychologists, says this, a new, as new beliefs, behaviors, emotions, imaginings, actions, and relational patterns flowing from Christ's resurrection get stored in one's memory system, forming new corresponding episodes of one's story, new dynamic structures are laid down in the brain that come to constitute the new self neural networks by neural network. So as we, as we work, it's very important in our thought lives that we are meditating on Scripture, that we are truly conceiving of God as He is, that we are developing thoughts, conscious thoughts, uh, whether it be as it regards repentance and Jesus being our holiness, um, whether it regards uh, God's goodness in all things to accomplish His perfect plan, whatever it is, we, we know that belief systems change the brain. And when we get caught in beliefs that are steeped in shame and guilt, that actually can damage the brain. It does damage the brain. But because part of the redemptive journey that we're on, we have now been given access to divine truth that is uh, the perfect antidote for shame. And as we meditate on truth and as we learn to think in ways that are more aligned with the reality that God has created, 
it actually changes our brain and heals our brain. That's stunning. Um, Also in the realm of affections, holy versus unholy desires. So in our thoughts, we want to produce holiness or or we want to try to think in in a way that glorifies God. Uh, We also want to understand that our affections are at work as well. Um, We read in Ephesians 4, 19 through 24 about this. Paul talks a lot about the desires of the heart. Uh, And it's in that passage where he says we must put off the old self, that which we once were, and be made new in the attitudes of our minds and put on the new self. And, And he says in there that the old self is producing desires that create corruption. And so we still have to wrestle with with the desires of the flesh that are still there. But we also want to recognize that those desires are deceitful. So examples of deceitful desires are uh, maybe good things, but we desire them to the point that they're either sinful or unhealthy. Uh, Jesus put it in these terms. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21. That's a that's a as a person in the in the realm of psychology, that is a profound statement that says much about the psychology of humanity. Where your treasure is, that will capture your heart. And what our treasure is, is ultimately what do we value most in the moment? What do we want most in the moment? And we can want things like acceptance and approval and significance and control and security all of those things not being bad in and of themselves, but if they become my ultimate treasure, then that will capture my heart and it will motivate what I do, what I say, and what I think. So in the example, me walking home and I start getting angry because my wife um, hasn't done something that I really wanted her to do, maybe I view that as a lack of respect. So if I allow myself in my thoughts or my words to say something hateful or angry or think something hateful or angry, what has just happened in that moment is uh, my functional treasure, my functional God is respect. It's no longer the God of Scripture. And now I find myself in a, a war of worship. And part of pursuing holiness is recognizing any time I have a desire that prompts me towards sin, uh, then very well I may be bowing to, to an idol. Uh, Colossians 3, 5, Paul talks about putting off certain things. And the last three things he says is uh, we must put off evil desires and coveting, which is idolatry. So he puts that in the realm of worship. A good friend of mine, David Pallison, says it this way. Even desires for good things can become evil in God's analysis of what makes us tick. So I'm not saying we shouldn't want acceptance, we shouldn't want approval, we shouldn't want security. Those are all normal things, but we can't allow them to become our ultimate treasure. And so as we, as we pursue holiness in our lives, we want to be asking ourselves, especially in, in the face of temptation um, or in the face of uh, maybe something like anxiety, what is this struggle exposing about my heart? God is revealing something in me that tends to enslave me that he is wanting to free me from. James K.A. Smith articulates this idea this way. We are talking about ultimate loves, that to which we are fundamentally oriented and ultimately governs our vision of the good life, what shapes and molds our being in the world. 
In other words, what we desire above all else, the ultimate desire that shapes and positions and makes sense of all the penultimate desires and actions. And then in the realm of, of, of emotions, guys, a lot of times we're, we're not, when I'm working with couples and I'm trying to get men, them to start communicating at a different level, often I'll give them this sheet. It's, it's an emotion wheel and it's just got all these word, emotional words on it. And whereas men tend to just come across who, who struggle with anger, you know, if they're upset or hurt, the only thing they really know to do is to express anger. Because that's the least vulnerable emotion, right? So they can do that without looking weak. So we try to pull the veil back from that anger and say, what, are there some emotions here that you actually experience uh, when your wife does X? And so part of their job is to learn um, some words that capture the experience they have when they're upset with their wives. Uh, emotions reveal a lot about, about us. Tozer says this, the purpose of man's feelings and emotions is to lead to the one who implanted those within the heart of man to the creator. Um, so emotions reveal things about us. It's, it's often a smoke alarm to tell us, to remind us, to ask the question, what am I thinking? What am I believing? And what am I wanting? Um, so we want to be uh, aware of the emotional life. And then finally, in the realm of behavior, and this is where I think it's important that we, we not neglect that behavior is significant in the Christian walk. Um, there is a call to do good and to do right. Acts twenty six twenty, Paul says this, declared first to those to Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and all uh, the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In Proverbs 3, 7 through 9, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to do all to the glory of God. So when I was first coming into the biblical counseling world, um, there was a guy named Jay Adams who was the, the forerunner of biblical counseling uh, back in the 1970s. And he was criticized a lot because he, he did emphasize behavior, maybe too much. And so when I came into the field of biblical counseling, I kind of put that whole thing, I kind of put Jay Adams on a shelf um, because he, was, he believed very much that a, an aspect of heart change was behavior change. Um, doing this now for 20 years, Jay Adams is right. Um, if we're not exercising different behaviors, it does impact the heart. Let me give you an example. Um, if, you, if you had a severe fear of elevators uh, and you just experienced amazing heightened anxiety anytime you thought about going on an elevator, you and I could sit in counseling one year, two years, three years. We could talk about that fear. Uh, but until you go and get on an elevator and exercise the things that we've talked about, you're never going to overcome that anxiety. Behavior matters. Behavior does change the heart. When you, when you think about the church fathers, um, they were big on something called habituation. 
habits are very important. Um, you know, if, if you are seeking a change and all you're doing is, is sitting and praying about that, that could happen. Heart change can happen that way as well. As you examine your heart, as you, as you examine your thoughts um, and your desires. But I want to always encourage that if you're trying to make true change in your life, do something different. Not in your own strength. But knowing that God, as we, as I mentioned earlier, Titus 2 says that his grace is constantly being poured out upon us so that we can live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. Uh, it can be something as simple as, you know, if a, if a guy wrestles with alcohol and every night he's going home and plops down on the couch at 6 o'clock and just starts drinking until bedtime, uh, just changing a habit of you know, rather than go sit on, on the couch, go outside and, and play with your children for a couple of hours or go take a walk or go and you and your wife um, uh, sit down at the kitchen table and just talk to her about life, about maybe your struggle. Just something different in that routine can be something small but significant that moves that person in a new way of living. Okay, so don't, let's never diminish the, the importance of, of all of those domains. Uh, thoughts, desires, behavior, and then emotions are like smoke signals of the soul. They're telling us, hey, pay attention. Because if, if you're feeling uneasy, it's very possible um, that something's going on in your heart that you, you want to pay attention to. Um, I want to close with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. called Christ-likeness. Father of Jesus, dawn returns, but without thy light within, no outward light can profit. Give me the saving lamp of thy spirit that I may see thee, the God of my salvation, the, the delight of my soul, rejoicing over me in love. I commend my heart to thy watchful care, for I know its treachery and power. Guard its every portal from thy wily enemy. Give me quick discernment of his deadly arts. Help me to recognize his bold disguise as an angel of light and bid him be gone. May my words and works allure others to the highest walks of faith and love. May loiterers be quickened to greater diligence by my example. May worldlings be won to delight in acquaintance with thee. May the timid and irresolute be warned of coming doom by my zeal for Jesus. Cause me to be a mirror of thy grace, to show others the joy of thy service. May my lips be well-tuned symbols sounding thy praise. Let a halo of heavenly mindedness sparkle around me and a lamp of kindness sunbeam my path. Teach me the ha happy art of attending to the things temporal with a mind intent on things eternal. Send me forth to have compassion on the ignorant and miserable. Help me to walk as Jesus walked, my only Savior and perfect model, his mind my inward guest, his meekness my covering garb. Let my happy place be amongst the poor in spirit, my delight be the gentle ranks of the meek. Let me always esteem others better than myself and find in true humility an heirdom to two worlds. Let me pray. Father, we first want to thank you for the fact that we are united with you 
And as we wrestle in this fallen world, in this fallen body, to seek to glorify you with our lives, to seek holiness, that we do so already considered completely holy. And I pray, Father, that you would remind us of that often and that we would find comfort in that and that it would turn our hearts to worship and adore you for the great gift that you've given us in yourself. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.